If you turn in your Bibles tonight, we are actually going to do a Bible study tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll pick up in verse 9, and we'll finish here with chapter 5. I'm going to ask you a question. What motivates you? What is your motivation in your life and in your living for the Lord? What is it that drives you? What is it that spurs you on? What is it that causes you to get up in the morning and and do what God has called you to do? What is it that motivates you? The Apostle Paul is going to give us some insight into his motivation. Because here's the truth of it. While we're in these earthly bodies, these tents, um, we are absent from the presence of the Lord. But one day we're actually going to be in the presence of the Lord. Every person in here, as we saw last week, is going to do a tent trade-in one day. You're going to move out of your tent and into a mansion. But what you do while you're still in your tent is very important. What these young people are doing in their tents to take a step of faith and go to, by the way, if you look on the State Department's list of most dangerous countries in the world, guess where we're sending our kids? (laughs) To two of the top five. Two of the top five most dangerous countries in the world. And you're going, I didn't know that. I wouldn't have let my kids go. (laughs) Do we trust the Lord or do we not trust the Lord? What is our motivation while we're still here? If it's to play it safe, there's not going to be many rewards for you in heaven. If it's to rest on your laurels, If it's to simply make money, if it's to sit around and be healthy, wealthy, and wise, not going to have a whole lot of kingdom effect. Now, if you use those riches for the glory of the Lord, that's a different matter. But what is your motivation? Are you motivated tonight for the causes of the king? Are you concerned with what concerns God? Paul was concerned with pleasing the Lord. And I pray that we see tonight maybe a different way to look at the motivation that we have for ministry and for our lives and our living while we're still here in these earthly tents. Would you pray with me? We'll pick up in verse 9. Father, we thank you. Lord, thank you for the bravery, the boldness of these young people. Lord, to answer the call to go to a far away place lord many of them don't speak the language some do lord away from the comforts of home god we ask that you would stimulate all of us to good works lord that you'd use us for your glory that we'd be unashamed and unafraid of the gospel lord of being used for the gospel purposes god we ask that you would ignite a fire in this church that can't be extinguished by the things of this world Lord, help us to live our lives with some healthy, reckless abandon for the king. Motivate us, Lord, to be used of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 9, 2 Corinthians 5, And therefore we make it our aim, 
The word aim there is phileo TMI, which is a, it's an interesting word because it actually means to seek after honor. If, if you look at it in its context, it's, it's not just like a goal. It is a goal of holy honor. It's a goal of the highest cause. It isn't like you want to have a little better sales record. It is you're attempting to reach for something that brings holy honor to God. We make it our aim. We look at our lives as having so much meaning and purpose that we are cognizant of the fact that we have a holy calling and that holy calling means that we need to seek after the honor of the Lord in all that we do. We make it our aim, whether present or absent, whether we're here on this earth or whether we've gone to heaven to be well-pleasing to him, to God. And now he gives us the reason. For we must all appear. This passage is written to Christians, and so this obviously is speaking of one very specific judgment seat, which we'll get to in a moment. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every person in this room who has named the name of Jesus is one day going to stand before Jesus himself and give an account of what you did with your time, your talent, your treasure, what you did with your ambition, your goals, your assets, the things that you were given on, in, on this earth and in this life, what did you do with them? We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body. It's very clear that this is speaking of a rewards judgment or lack thereof. According to what he has done, whether good or bad, what she has done, whether good or bad, what you've done with your time, talent, treasure, your opportunities, what did you do with them while you were still here? Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. Can you say tonight that you're well known to God? For something good? You see, some people are well-known to God for the wrong reason. Are you well-known to God for the right reason? Are you living your life with holy meaning and holy purpose? Or are you just living your life? Some people receive the grace of God and do nothing with it. Other people want to take the grace that's been imparted to them and use it for the kingdom's glory and for God's good. And I trust that all are well known because we are well known in your conscience. In other words, he's saying, look, for those that know other people who are well known before the Lord, those of us who know the Lord personally look at those lives and we want to emulate them. I'm looking at these young people going, that gives me hope. I read, the, I read the news on the internet. That's a hope sucker right there. That's like, 
Hope's all gone. You watching anything in the news today, you know that the Iranians shot down one of our Global Hawk drones today. Those are not cheap drones, and they're the size of a jet fighter aircraft. They're a surveillance drone. Cost about 45 million bucks a piece. You, you know, when you sit there and you think about all that's going on in the world, you can lose heart. But when you recognize the good that God is getting done in this world through the lives of junior hires and high schoolers, it gives us hope. Amen? We need to pray that our response is measured. But we're not hoping in the eternal through our government. We're hoping in the eternal through the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We have a different set of goals. We have a different set of parameters whereby we live our lives. If you're here tonight and you you can ask yourself a simple question, what am I doing for the king? And you can answer it and you can list some things. Praise God. But I can tell you, I've talked to an awful lot of people that can't tell you the last time they did anything for the king. Very often you find them coming to church looking to get something instead of give something. They're not looking to serve. They're not looking to go. They're not looking to fulfill the Great Commission. They're looking to receive something. And while there's a time and a place for receiving from the Lord, there should also be a time and a place for us giving back to the King in service to Him because He's worthy of it. He is that focus of holy honor that we should have. He should be our goal. And Paul knows this. When you think about what's being said here, look, my hope is not in this earth. It's not in anything on this earth. And and the moment I say that, people, oh, that's kind of a fatalistic approach. No, it's not at all. I just know that this world is perishing. And that doesn't mean I'm giving up on everything on the earth. That simply means that I have the right perspective on earthly living. No matter what I do and no matter what we might accumulate or accomplish while we're still here, the fact of the matter is the things that we do for here stay here and one day they will perish with here. It is only the eternal things that are going to matter when we get to heaven. That's people that you've led to Christ. That's people that you've helped grow in Christ. That's people that you've ministered to in Christ. That is those that they will minister to in El Salvador. That's those widows and orphans on the island of Tierra Bomba. Those things go with you to heaven. Whether you have a newer, nicer car is not going to matter when you get to heaven. Nothing against those things, by the way. This is not a slam anyone who has everything that they want on earth type of thing. This is to simply say eternal things are eternal things and temporal things are temporal things. And we must focus on eternal things. Temporal things are a necessity while you're here, but they will not matter when you get there. We need to have that right. Paul was driven with that kind of holy ambition. Basically, the theme of our conference on Saturday is putting Christ first. Paul put Christ first. 
In his thinking at the forefront was Christ. It wasn't everything else, and I'll add in a little Jesus. It was Christ first. And so what have you done? We can ask the question with the life that God's given you, because God's given you the life that you have. Did you know that? It's a gift from God, actually. He gave you life. Our government didn't give us life. God gave us life. God has given us life. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with the resources, the gifts, the opportunities, the things that you have been entrusted with while you're here? What are you doing with them for the king, for the kingdom? How about, how about the opportunities that we have or the influence that we have? What are you doing with those things for the king? Notice what it says. We must all appear. You cannot get past that word must. You have a, an appointment with destiny in heaven. You're going to stand before the Lord of heaven and earth and give an account for what you did with all those things he gave you. There ought to be a mixture of absolute awe that he would even entrust anything to us along with the healthy dose of, you know, maybe I want to rethink what I'm doing right now with the things that God's given me. Because when you get there, it's going to be too late. When you get there, it's going to be too late to go back and say, man, I sure wish... I'd have shared Jesus more with people. I sure wish I'd have ministered to my family. I sure wish I'd been a better parent. I sure wish I'd have gone on a missions trip. I sure wish that I'd have served in the children's ministry. I sure wish I'd have volunteered to go minister to the homeless. I sure wish I would have, I would have really loved to have given a crown to Jesus, that reward that I'll receive at that judgment seat for the good things that I've done, but I don't have anything to give the king because while I was here, I didn't do much. Wow. Here's the awesome news. There's still plenty of time for you to have crowns to give to the king because you're still here. We're still here. You can alter your destiny, if you will, with that regard. You can say, Lord, I, I want to give my life to you. I don't want to just receive the grace of God. I don't want to just receive salvation. I don't want to just take the free gift. I want to give back to the one who saved me. Man, how we have to get this. Because the Lord needs us right now where we are in this world to get busy about our Father's business. We are needed as sheriff's officers we are needed as teachers we are needed in the grocery stores we're needed at costco we're needed on car lots we are needed everywhere in this world so that the world can know about jesus you can receive crowns from mowing lawns when it's done for the glory of the lord Paul had that kind of motivation. And I asked, do we have that kind of motivation? 
I pray we do, and I know many of you do. Let's look at some of the motives that Paul lays out here. Number one, that we would live ambitiously and labor for the king. We make it our aim. We make it our goal. And it doesn't matter the situation. He qualifies this by saying, look, whether I'm absent, present, I just want to be well-pleasing to the Lord. I want to be well-pleasing to God. I want when God looks at my life for God to go, that's awesome, Jeff. You know, sometimes I think when God looks at our lives, he's going, oh, man. What is that all about? And again, please don't receive condemnation from this. It's just simply drawing attention to the possibility you can either be used of the Lord for his glory or you become a detriment to his kingdom because people are looking at how you live your life and they're going, what's that all about? And the reason I say that is when a Christian is not walking in the Spirit, when a Christian does not do what God's called him to do, when we are on this earth and we've received so much by grace and we do nothing with it, then people who don't know Jesus look at the way we live our lives and they go, why would I want to be like that? I can do that without knowing Jesus. We want to give glory to the king. I want to labor for the one who died on Calvary's cross. As Paul began his, his letter to the church in Galatia, or in chapter 1, verse 10, it says, For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, then I would not be a bondservant to Christ. Paul was not a man pleaser. He was a God pleaser. When he got up in the morning, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And help me to do it. Now it's important that we go and do what God's called us to do in the workplace and do our jobs very well so that when we say we're a Christian and we're doing that, then whatever your position in life is and whatever your job is, do even that to the glory of the Lord. If people in your workplace know that you're a Christian, then you should be the best employee doing the very best job at whatever it is you're doing so that God gets the glory because you're the best employee they have. But too many Christians sit around and they complain about their employers. They whine about the job they have. That's why I want to send some of you to El Salvador. I want to have you walk through some of those places that people live. I want to have you go dip the muddy water out of the river that's filled with dish soap, human waste, and animal waste, and then go pour it into 10 different buckets trying to get enough sediment out of it so that you can drink it. And I don't say that to shame anyone. We have it really good in this country. What are we doing with it? That doesn't mean we don't go through problems. It doesn't mean that some in this room aren't seriously suffering right now. And I don't mean to insult anyone if that's your case tonight. But what I do mean to say is, God wants us to bring us glory and honor and praise. While we're still here, we have opportunity to do that. Paul writes to the church at Rome, he says, 
I, I want to be well-pleasing. I want to give my, my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. There in Romans chapter 12, holy and acceptable, pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Ephesians 5 wants us to, well, God is well pleased when we're separated from the world, when we disdain evil, when we love God. There's all kinds of ways that we can actually be pleasing to God. But are we seeking to be pleasing to God? That's the question for us. The truth is, someday, you're going to take your last breath and then you're going to see Jesus. And the first place you're going is to stand before the king. The first place you're going. So how'd it go, Jeff? How'd it go? What did your life count for? Now, while this isn't going to determine your salvation, it is going to determine whether you have a crown given to you? Not a royal crown, a victor's crown. Royal crown belongs only on the head of Jesus. But a victor's crown, someone who ran the race well, someone who finished strong, someone who was not just in the game. Isn't it weird that we live in a society where it boggles my mind We give awards to everyone for everything. If you just show up, you get a medal. It's not even a participation medal. It's like you were near the field medal. That's not what we're talking about. This is I ran well. I finished the race. Now, you're going to give that crown back to Jesus. But one day you're going to stand and give an account. My junior year in high school, I ran in the Mount Sac Invitational cross country. It's a big race here in Southern California. And in our district in San Diego County, we had three of the top runners in the country, including Stephen Mendoza, who would go on to set the U.S. record for the mile. And I remember running, I'm thinking, there's just no way. I mean, I've got these three, four guys in this race that are they're three of the fastest guys in the world at the time. That gun goes off. First mile out, we're kind of still all bunched up. Second mile out, we're still all kind of bunched up. Third mile out, starting to get a little separation. Some of those better guys are starting to pull away. That last half mile coming in, that's where all of the positions were decided. You see, we all run, but do we run to win? Some people run to win, some people just run to run. I placed eighth. I thought that was pretty good, but there's no medal for eighth. Back then, it was first, second, third. After that, you were called a loser. <laughs> For some reason, we could actually call people who didn't win losers then. 
Now you call somebody, you know, you lost. It's like, well, I didn't really lose. I, I lacked opportunity. <laughs> it was an opportunity for me to actually show my best. I mean, all these things happened to me. That's, you're not going to be able to say that to Jesus. He's just simply going to ask you, what did you do with the time, talent, and treasure that I gave you? Because you had it. He's not going to ask you how you did against someone else's performance. He's going to ask you what you did with what you had. And I pray that we get this. You see, as Paul said, we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord there in Romans chapter 14. Whatever I do, I do for the Lord. Whether I live or I die doing it. Paul was ambitious. He wanted to stand at that Bema seat and go, I ran as hard as I could. I finished well. One of my great fears personally, just me personally, is I don't want to stumble across the finish line. I don't want to fall down in the last hundred meters. Metaphorically speaking, of my race in, in the kingdom. I want to finish well. I want to go out hard. I want to put everything out on the field. Now, you can think what you want about Kevin Durant's injury. But for those of you that follow basketball, Kevin Durant's one of the greatest basketball players that's ever played the game. And there is one thing that I do admire he left it on the court. He left it on the court. I believe he knew he was injured, and I believe he knew that there was a possibility that he was going to get injured further, but he left it on the court. Are you willing to leave it on the court? Are you willing to say, you know what, I would rather get hurt trying than sit around going, well, you know, I might get hurt. Going in the mission field, you, you might get sick. You, you might get some bad water. You might eat something you shouldn't eat. There's a possibility that maybe something's going to happen to you. Now, as remote as that is, as much preparation as we undertake, the bottom line is, if you want to play it safe, you're not going to have any rewards to give to Jesus. There needs to be a little holy risk-taking with our lives, family. And why do I say that? Because that's where you really see who you are for the kingdom. That's where we actually get to understand, Lord, you can do this through me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? Not I can do nothing. I can do all things. Not that I am going to do those all things, but if I submit myself to the will of God and say, God, I want to leave it on the court, then God can help you do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And that's what he wants. You would be amazed at what the the Lord can do through you if you'll say, I'm putting it all out there. You see, the truth is our works are going to be revealed at that judgment seat. And to that end, we need to persuade men that one day they're going to see Jesus. Notice verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 
Oh, we are well known to God. And they also trust are well known in your consciences. In other words, when somebody knows about you, they go on fire for Jesus. Absolutely being used to the Lord. No question there. That person is sold out for Christ. For we do not not commend ourselves again to you. It's not boasting. It's not bragging. It's just true. Here's the crazy thing. When you're actually doing what God wants you to do, it's just true. People can see it. And here's what happens. You're out on the mission field, and God does these crazy things, and you're just going, it was so awesome. God met us in every single thing that we went and did. And the Lord receives the glory for it. But give you an opportunity to boast on our behalf. Let someone else sing those praises. I can't wait to hear the stories. Because I'll tell you what, I'll boast about them. That's what Paul's saying here. When someone else sees what happens in your life for the king and for the kingdom, other people start talking about it. They start going, man, you should go to that church. Their junior hires just went off to El Salvador. The high schoolers are they're in Colombia of all places. Go there where the Lord's working. Not people are playing it safe, trying to make sure that the church is still the same color when everybody dies. And yes, I got some more emails. We don't worship buildings. We worship the king of kings, okay? That you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we ourselves, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're out of our minds is what he's actually saying. If we're beside ourselves, if we're, if we're kind of looking nuts to you, it's for God. I'm out of my mind for the sake of Christ is another way to look at it. Or if we are sound mind, it is for you. It is the coolest thing when, the, when people notice that there's something a little different about us as the body of Christ. When they look at us and go, man, I don't know what's going on with them, but they're a little kooky for Jesus. They're a little over the top for Jesus. They're always doing these crazy things for Jesus. I got a little note. Somebody sent me a, a, a note via email and they were talking yeah i ran into i ran into your team down at the down at the harbor you know they were sure pushing that whole jesus thing yes and they were literally talking like it was you know it was offensive look the bible says the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing to people who don't know the word it's going to offend somebody and they're going to think you're nuts When you tell them that you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, and that you talk to Jesus every day, they're going to go, woo. Problem is, the proof's in the pudding. Let the redeemed of the Lord say, aye, amen. I know in whom I have believed that he is able to keep that which he's committed unto the day of Christ Jesus. I know that I know. Sure as I'm standing here, I'm as sure as I'm going there. 
you see, we have to ignore the criticisms of men. People are going to criticize you. They're going to think that you're nuts, you're crazy, you're mad. Paul was previously persecuting the church, wasn't he? Think about it. Paul goes from a persecutor of Christians to the number one advocate for the gospel that was in the world at that time. You think people didn't think he snapped? He kind of had a little breakdown somewhere. All, all of his friends who were still steeped in Judaism were sitting around with their talus on, holding a couple of stones, the Urim and the Thummim, and they're, they're like, man, we got to do something with Paul. He's really lost it. I remember the first time I told my dad, Connie and I were going off to Austria, our first mission adventure together, and we, were, we sold everything, put the rest of our stuff in storage, and we're moving to Austria. Now, bear in mind, we, neither one of us spoke German at the time. Now I can, but we're, God called us. My dad's like, What? Are you crazy? What are you going over there for? I want to tell people about Jesus. He thought I was crazy. My dad's now a believer. <laughs> he thinks differently about that experience now. But it, 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 the point is this. If you're waiting for people to approve of what you're doing for the Lord, you're in trouble already. You just need to be well-pleasing to God. Paul wasn't mad. He was just simply on fire for the king, amen? He loved the Lord Jesus. And he knew when he got to that judgment seat, it was going to go really well. In that sense, he had much deeper motivations. You realize the king actually died for you, right? Jesus died for you for the love of Christ compels us because we judge this that if one died for all then all died it's no longer I who live it's Christ who lives in me and the life that I live I now live for him my king died for me the least I can do is live for him amen think about it for a second you are going to heaven for eternity because Christ died for you. Can't we give him like maybe 80, 90 years if we live a while while we're here? That's, that's the reference point. When you sit there and think about what you've gained through your new life in Christ, giving your life while you're here, that's why Paul said, I don't count my own life dear. He was talking about his physical life here. This time that we're here on this earth is insignificant compared to eternity. And so he says, give that part up and glorify God for eternity. That's why when we read these passages, we're going, Lord, help me to get this. Verse 15 says, for he died for all, so that those who live should live no longer for themselves. That's right. The church who had Christ pay our price for us of our redemption our salvation. He is the one who secured the Holy Spirit in us for our sanctification. The one who did those things 
says to you and me, we should no longer live for ourselves. You see, that's the exact opposite of what the world says, isn't it? The world says you have to live for yourself. And if you don't live for yourself, there's something wrong with you. That's why the world thinks that we're crazy. Is because we don't live for ourselves, we live for Jesus. So the world says, well, that's kind of nuts. And yet it's the way that the body of Christ should live. But for him who died for them and rose again, that's who we live for. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Look, it does not matter who you know. It does not matter who you're friends with. It does not matter how rich those people are that are in your sphere of influence. It doesn't matter whether you know very famous people, very wealthy people, or you know the President of the United States and the rulers of every nation on earth. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know nothing. It's that simple. And I hate to crash on anybody's parade. Without Christ, no one sees heaven. So you can have all this world has to offer. That's why Jesus said, what profits it a man if you gain this whole world and lose your soul? And so that's Paul's reference point. He says, we have regard for no one in the flesh. In other words, he's not saying that people aren't important. He's not saying that people don't matter at all. He's simply saying the only real regard we should have is what does Jesus think? What would Jesus do? How would the Lord handle this situation? What would be most well-pleasing to the Lord? That's what should concern his kids. So as the church, when we think of these things, we should be going, Lord, I'm not so much worried about what people think. I'm worried about what you think. I'm worried about how you want me to handle this situation. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Look, there's not a person in this room who's ever seen Jesus. Now we know him, but I haven't seen him yet. But one day I'm going to see him. Therefore, if any was in Christ, you got this one lined out in your Bible? Is it highlighted, surrounded in red? Got some asterisks somewhere in there? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Amen? The words that are used there is not an old, remade you. It's a brand new creation. Yes, you have your personality, and yes, people will know you when you get to heaven, but you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Why? The old things have passed away. It actually says the old things are actively still passing away in the original language. That it's an ongoing work of sanctification. That your old man, your old woman, not your husband, not your wife, but the old you is passing away. Amen? The old you is in the process of being gone is another way to look at it. And one day you're going to say, adios. You're going to pack up the tent, the tent staying here, and the real you's going to heaven. That's your life in Christ. That's what we look forward to. So I think on this is like, praise God. 
Behold, all things. How many things? All things have become what? New. It's not a redo. It's not an extreme makeover. There's a whole new you. Praise God. Amen? It's a whole new you. There's a new you that's able to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There's a new you that can be well-pleasing to God. There's a new you that now walks in the grace of God. There's a new you that can talk actively with God every moment of every day. There is a new you that's in contact with the creator of the universe. You have a phone in your life. You can dial up Jesus 24-7, amen? It's a new you. Don't be stuck to the old you because the old you's dead. It's gone. Recognize the new you. It's got a new motivation for new things. It's living a new life. I love this passage because of what it does for me personally. The king died for you so that you could share in that new creation. Amen? Not so you could stay all messed up like you already were. A lot of Christians don't walk in victory because they're trying to hang on to the old you. During the Civil War, more amputations were done during the Civil War than any other war in human history. Do you know why? It was infection, specifically bacterial infection. We did not know how to fight the infection, and so that damaged old part that was rotting away would eventually kill the person to which it was attached. And so rather than the whole person died, the limbs were taken off. That's a picture of the whole new you. You can't hang on to the old dead you. The old infected you. The old messed up you. That part's gone. There's a whole new you. And oh, by the way, you're not limping around either. You don't need a prosthesis. You didn't need crutches. Old things are actively passing away. There's a new you that's being revealed. The onion layers are being peeled back. And one day the trumpet's going to sound and the dead in Christ are going to rise. Amen? Amen. We're going to be in heaven. Completely glorified. That's the path we're on. Christ died so that could happen for us. And because of that, we have a new view of people. We're one people in him. When I look at people, I see people now as as those who are just like me, sinners who need a savior, who are on the path of sanctification. And so it doesn't surprise me when people sin. It doesn't shock me when people are messed up. I don't go, oh, man, I can't, I can't believe they did that. You know, every once in a while, I'll get a phone call, and it begins like this. Well, I know you've never heard this. Trust me. There's very little you could say to me that I haven't already heard. Why? Because I realize that sin or sin. 
people need a savior and we're capable of unbelievable evil things. But I know this too, my God is greater. Amen? Amen? My God is greater than all of our stuff. He's able to redeem to the uttermost. If we'll submit ourselves to his tender care, to his correction, instruction, to movement the right direction, he'll get rid of the old dead us, and he'll peel back the new us, and he'll make sure that we're ready when we go off to heaven. Why? Because the king's on a mission. You see, he's saying, look, I've reconciled you. That means that your debt has been squared away. The books have been balanced. It says, now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. The reconciliation, the balancing of your books were done through Jesus Christ. That's how your books got balanced in heaven. It was not because you did good things, it's because Christ died for you. The books of your life, the balance of your life, the reconciliation is made. This is a mathematical term. It's an accounting term. It means you used to have a negative balance. It was going to cost you your eternity. You now have a positive balance in Christ's righteousness. That's the second thing. That's the imputation of righteousness. So what you had before was a negative balance due to your own sin. Christ said, I'm going to wipe that out. No, by the way, I'm going to take care of your present sins and your future sins so that your books are always balanced. And in order to do that, here's how he does it. He imputes the righteousness of the king of heaven into your account. So you cannot out the grace of God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? So you have had your books balanced. You now have in your account the righteousness of Christ. So when the books are open, God goes, righteousness of Christ, righteousness of Christ. That's my son, that's my son. I don't see Jeff anymore, I see my son, Jesus, who's perfect. The righteous one. This is mind-boggling stuff. I have the righteousness of Christ in my account. So when God the Father looks at my account balance, he sees the righteousness of Jesus leading to my justification. And what happens with justification is now as far as the records are concerned, there isn't a negative balance. It's just Jesus. Everything we are is because of Jesus. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. If God imputed my trespasses to me, I would be a dead man eternally. If he took my unrighteousness and that's what he saw, I'm toast. It's over. But he doesn't. He has committed us to the word of reconciliation. And now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though through God we were pleading through, as God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. He's saying, look, who wouldn't want this? It's like, who wouldn't want to be reconciled to God? Do you want to have Christ's righteousness or do you want to have your own account balance? 
You know, sometimes when I'm, I'm dealing with young couples that are about to get married, we usually have this, this thing. We have to have the discussion. You going to have his and hers bank accounts? Or are you going to have one bank account? And the reason I do that is because if you don't trust each other with money, why would you trust each other with your life? Why do you think that's going to work out? Praise God, there's been nothing held back by Jesus. He put all of Christ's righteousness into your account. There's one account, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. My guilt, my shame, the pain of my own sin is gone forever. Be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin. Who's him? That's Jesus. Who's the he? That's God. God made his own son who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's what happened on the cross. That's how you were reconciled to God. God took every single bit of his wrath and all of your sin, and he placed that all on Jesus. Jesus was bruised and crushed. The iniquity for all, everything that you could have ever done was all heaped on Jesus. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, there was a reason for the cross I'm telling you, this is, this is holy ground stuff is what this is. This is like the affirmation of affirmations. This concept is, is beyond our thinking to, to some degree. That a sinless God, Jesus, was placed on a wooden cross, an instrument of torture, and then all of the sins of the world were placed upon him. That God the Father looked on from heaven and didn't stop it. How many of you dads could have done that? Your own son being nailed to a tree. People mocking and spitting and cursing and beating and flogging and tearing the flesh off of your son's body. And your statement is, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Everyone that touched my son would be dead if I were God. There'd just be a big pile of dead bodies all around Jesus. Think about it. Imagine the love that was undertaken at the cross that God the Father allowed that to happen to his only son so that we could be reconciled to God. Unbelievable. That's unbelievable love. That's beyond our understanding love. Now I want you to see this in verse 21. In the Old Testament economy... In the way of the Jewish people, there were two primary sacrifices, the sin offering and the burnt offering. And while they were almost exactly the same in what was done, 
they were for very different purposes. The offerer would bring an animal. That animal would be examined by the priest to make sure it was without blemish. He would place his hand on the head, identify himself with it, and then he would slay it. The sin offering. The vileness of the sinner was symbolically transferred to the sacrifice. But with the burnt offering, all of the virtue of the sacrifice was transferred to the substitute. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you. He was the burnt offering. He was consumed. He was the sin offering. He was the one that took every single bit of your sin. That's why it says what it says. He who knew no sin. Those animals didn't know any sin. Those animals were innocent. But they were made sin. Jesus was made sin. That's the significance of the cross. The Lord Jesus, a sinless, spotless lamb, took upon himself every bit of my sin, went to Calvary's cross, and was murdered for me. Not just me, but the whole world. That's why he was made sin. It's because he knew no sin. You had to make Jesus sin because he didn't have any himself. So what motivates us? Question just got answered. What motivates us? The king of heaven. The king of the universe the creator of heaven and earth took your sin upon himself and then was put to death for your sin. And so Paul's simply saying, our response should be, I'm going to live for my king. I'm going to give my life for the one who gave his life for me. I'm going to spend what I have to glorify him. It's the least I can do, in essence. It's also the best we can do. That's why I pray we do. I pray that we have that godly motivation that says, Lord, I want to spend my life for you because you gave your life for me. Amen? Would you stand with me? We're going to close in prayer. Jesse's going to come back out. We're going to close in song. Don't be bummed. Amen? Don't, Don't be put off by this. Be challenged by it. Say, Lord, tomorrow I want to get up in the morning... And I want to be motivated to serve you. You gave your life for me. I'm going to give my life for you. Begin small. Pick something in your life that you know God would like to see changed. And say, Lord, 
I'm dedicating this change to you. I want you to be glorified in my life. A little more tomorrow than it was today and just move forward until you get home to heaven. Ask him to do bigger and greater things. Take deeper challenges. Open your mind for God to speak. There's nothing better in the whole world than giving your life for the king. Father, we thank you tonight that you became all that we needed and you sent your own son into this world. That the world through him, through you, Jesus, could be saved. And Lord, we who have professed you as Savior and Lord, we say thank you, God, for loving us so richly and deeply, Lord, that we would tread holy ground with our lives. God, in, in search of that plan and purpose for which you created us. And so God, reveal your will to us. Help us to know which way to turn, which way to go, what to do. Lord, we thank you for tonight and Lord, for these high schoolers and junior hires that are heading out on Sunday. Lord, for lands far away, we pray that you would just speak into their lives like they've never heard your voice before. Lord, invigorate them to good works, to fruitfulness, kingdom things. Father, we thank you for loving us, drawing us near. Pray that you would use us, use this church, Lord, it's your church, for your glory and for your kingdom. And we ask all this in the mighty name of Yeshua, Jesus, our God who is our salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.